That's the small talk. Now let's get down to business. Now, your programme. What's the big idea? Well, they've grown to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works. I moved over here and immediately I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I, I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and earn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, we had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never has a nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little green behind the red, white and blue. Our family is very Irish, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Charlie Thrigo! Steve Coogan, what a pleasure it is to have you on the Irish Man Abroad at last. Ten years since we started this podcast, and you might be the first person I emailed to do the show. I think partially because you're such a huge part of my life. And also, I, I think everybody understands your connection to the country. And enough of my Irish fan base do, I'm sure, mm. uh, just because we look at my stuff there's little clues in there anyone who's a, who's a diehard fan will know will know that and uh um but i think i don't think the english are particularly aware of it but they don't really pay attention to <laughs> that stuff anyway but uh so yeah i think i think the irish there's certainly a, a large contingent of the irish of the irish who like what i do that that get it you know oh 100 and i think that the last we heard you were applying for irish citizenship and that there was a passport on the way. Has that come through yet? It has come through. I think it's been literally being delivered this week, week after about two years. It's, it's taken over two years. It's taken, uh, uh, yeah. Well, since, since, I mean, it was not long. Crikey. Uh, yes, it's, it's well over two years mm. now. At the centre of what you do and what you've made your life is the ability to observe. And when we talk about you know comedy impressions seem to be so low on the rungs of the ladder and i think wrongly so because it it takes so much to get one right that people seem to think that it's an easy task but from what i can tell from reading about you it did come easy to you it was the first thing that elicited laughs mm-hmm. from people was your ability to nail voices and mannerisms what was your first memory of really knowing oh, I've got that, I've got that person down? I don't know. I mean, my, you see, my whole relationship with doing impressions is a rather, is a bit, from a personal point of view, it's a bit difficult because to me, that's how I started out in the business. That's how I um, did, um, I used to do Spitting Image, this, this show with puppets mm-hmm. that was a political satire that was on two, 35 years ago. Uh, that's how I started in the business. And um, I don't really, to me, it's an, a sort of glorified party trick. I know that people, it, I, when I hear other people do it, it's impressive. But I'm sort of, to me, it's not really art. It's like juggling or something. You know, some mm. people can do it and do it very well. But it doesn't really, um, it's impressive. There's no doubt about that when you, when you see it. When you see, when you see a good impression, you think, wow. That's amazing, but it's sort of a. Um, I mean, it shows the person can, and, and and to have that 
I'm not sure it's a skill. Yes, it's a skill, but it's it's sort of um, it is indicative. If I'm being kind about it, which I'm not inclined to be, because I think people. Just, I think just do, I can't. I would be very depressed if all I did was do impressions, <laughs> because I think it's not artistic. I think it's just a sort of a you can produce a facsimile of another person or get the impression of another. It's sort of enjoyable only as far as it's like you watch, if you watch um, someone do it. A trick, or you watch someone do some sort of acrobatics or whatever, or or, or something impressive. You, you sort of go, wow, you know. If you just some watch someone do a backflip, it requires some amount of skill, but it doesn't it doesn't make you think about stuff very in a very deep way. And I like to do that. I like to do that through comedy or through drama. So to me, it it's only ever been that. But I think it does betray. I think it can betray that you have a good ear that mm. I would be able to absorb things and process them in a very fast way that was not really intellectual. It was just intuitive. Yeah. So, so, um, and I suppose it's been a very useful tool. Uh, that's, that's the best thing I can say about it, that mm. going forward in my career, trying to do things, produce things or make things that have subs that are of, have substance. Then yeah. it's a useful tool. Yeah, yeah. I think it's so strange to hear you say this because, you, you know, the the comparison between a backflip and that ability, uh, to me, it's closer to somebody who can sketch photorealistically from you know a photograph. They can really reproduce that photo mm. with yeah. pencil and paper. Uh, there's undoubted skill to it. There's a certain amount of instinct. Yes, I, 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 I acknowledge that. I just don't think it has any. It has any. It doesn't have any. It, you know, if you could just compare apples and oranges, I'd rather write something or produce mm. something or, or or make something that makes people think about something or shines a light on some sort of hypocrisy or so. Whether it's comedy or drama, I like to illuminate, do that thing, the sort of holy grail. Of of good art to shine a light on, uh, illuminate some aspects of humanity, uh, shine mm. a light on the human condition. It, it not in a, I mean, that sounds slightly affected, but you can do that in, in a fun way. You can do that in an engaging way, in an emotional way. That's what drives me. That's what gets, that's what moves me forward. Yeah. In the trip, I do do funny voices. And yes, it's fun to do. But it's it's like playing five aside, you know. So so <laughs> it's a sort of it, or, you know it, it's a fun thing to do. It's like a parlor game, whatever. Me and Rob are quite good at it. So yeah, it's definitely fun. It's diverting. But the only reason I'm happy to do it in the trip is because it's in a, it's in a wider context of an exploration of what it is to grow old, what it is to be a man, what friendship is, or um, you know what good art is. All those things are discussed by Rob and I, Rob and, mm. uh, and we. And we you know, and when that's a small, that's a kind of a fun component, the little sort of the guilt, sort of the icing on the cake sort of thing. You're listening to my conversation with Steve Coogan to celebrate 10 years, yes, 10 years of the Irishman Abroad podcast. Across the next year, we will have some of our biggest guests to date, and Steve is just kicking things off. Steve is someone that was introduced to me by a previous guest, Chris O'Dowd. So I want to take a moment to say thanks to Chris for making this introduction, even though that introduction was 10 years ago and it took 10 years to arrange this. 
that's kind of the bedrock of the show chasing down guests the ones that you want to hear the Irish people that have gone abroad and make it big whether it's Ronan O'Gara or Hosier or uh, David Walsh or uh, Keith Wood Dylan Moran Paul McGrath Colin Meany uh, Lisa Hannigan all of these conversations have met, meant so much to me and this last 10 years has been crazy and has culminated in me of course moving home which doesn't mean that Irish Man Abroad will end we've of course branched out into a bunch of other podcasts including Irish Man Running Abroad with Sonia Sullivan every Tuesday and Irish Man in America with Marion McKeown on a Friday I hope you'll subscribe to our show or come over to Patreon and gain access to the full back catalogue and archive of the show it's been a pleasure to make it and this interview with Steve Coogan as he says is just the icing on the cake I heard you say that getting angry about something, that 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 is where you'll take that, take that stuff that really gets your blood up and try and do something with that. Now, we know we can point to different examples through your work of when you were doing that and the things you were trying to point to. But have you ever found one where you're like, it's it's actually too hard? This is this is exceptionally difficult to to turn the anger into something else, whether that be funny or dramatic. To me, it's two things that motivate me. I, I think the things I'll point to is anger and love. Mm. Um, and those two things can sit side by side. But the anger, if the anger is all-consuming, or self-consuming, it's almost self-destructive. You know, you, you, you have to... You have to walk towards the light, whether it's, whether it's in your life or in art. You have to, you know, find the hope amidst the gloom. And and you can do that because, you know, there, there are people, there are lots of good people in the world, and you can sort of celebrate that and try to, uh, you know, try to hobble the people who you think are, are nefarious or malevolent. You know, yeah. So a- anger gets the engine going. But you have to. Your destination has to be a place of love. Mm. Um, so those two, those things are sort of, those things ha- happen in. Yeah, you know, there's sort of balance. Those things there's a, there's, there is a harmony to them. Um, I've never I've never felt like I couldn't talk about something if there is a topic which most people are worried about or scared to talk about. That's where you find interesting drama and comedy is mm-hmm. in is in the is in the difficult areas that people would rather not talk about because it's fractious and uh, you know that it's acrimonious and so i just i would rather uh so when, I, when those subjects rear their head comedy or drama is a good way to talk about them i, I don't necessarily talk about them myself personally but what i do do is put all that uh um, stuff that you get uh, all the ambi- ambiguity is a good place to to mm. to start with stuff but uh, anger anger anger's only good if you use it in the right way I mean I always like punch up don't punch down you know um, if I've got if there's a target it will always be powerful the establishment the greedy I don't pick on poor people I don't pick on the dispossessed I just don't do it like, or some other people do and, I, and uh, what I do is, I, if I see people picking on people, uh, culturally or artistically, I'll go go after them. Yeah, it, isn't it so funny then when we look at Philomena and your observation of you know, how you can 
you can laugh at old Irish women as long as it, there is a love within it. So you, you so you've you've been you've been you were of the you were told essentially that she, there were not to be jokes at her expense. No, 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 not really. No, I'm just saying the received wisdom is that you know Philomena that that's, you know, uh, that you can't that there's a sort of a, a, a privileged intellectual liberal conceit that to that it's not politically sound mm. to to make fun of you know. The things that some old Irish ladies say or used to say or the way they behave. But everyone's funny in their own way. And um, when I was growing up, I knew lots of lots of old Irish ladies in Ireland. You know, and they'd, sometimes they say funny things. So I didn't feel like, I didn't feel constrained by some sort of liberal intellectual guilt or, or sort of straightjacketed by some notion that uh, you can't laugh at something and love it simultaneously, and also celebrate someone. You know, we 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 make fun of the people we love. Certainly, it's an Irish and uh, and that's a British thing, not so much an American thing. Is that mocking? Um, you know, taking the mick out of people that that we love is is a sort of a, a way for emotionally repressed people to show affection, and I'm no no different in that regard. So. Yeah, um, I mean the the American roast would be an example of that too, wouldn't it? Uh, yes, this was they do do that, but but generals the, the, that 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 is actually as an example where they sort of say that's what we're doing. Where where you can use humour as a tool to sort of uh, sugar the pill of difficult subject matter, and that's all I was doing. With that. Well, look, there's 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 Philomena, and I don't put the two in the same category, but M- Martin Brennan has two observations of. Irish people and an understanding within you that this woman does occasionally say these type of women do say daft things, but they will equally put you in your place just so, so quickly put manners on you in the space of one sentence. Uh, you say you, you knew women like Philomena. Did you know men like Martin Brennan? Because it felt for so many yeah, people. They're just, they're just, yeah, yes, I did. Simple answer. I mean, look, you, you, the, the, these characters are... It was important, for example, you know, the whole basis of Philomena was that, you know, it's about an intellectual and a working class Irish woman and an Oxbridge intellectual. I mean, Martin, you know, Martin and Philomena, you know, were, are very, very like who, are very like who they are in the film, but they're not entirely like that. I probably took more liberties with Martin, with his permission, by the way, to make mm. him a cynical ex-Catholic. Martin's actually not an ex-Catholic. That was just a creative embellishment I put into the film to tell a story that was sort of partly to, to fuse Martin with a bit of me, to, to create a character that would be a good counterpoint to Philomena. But certainly, you know, there's definitely um, lots of Martin in there, and, but there's also quite a bit of me in there, which is not Martin. Um, so, uh, but, but the, the arc of that film in was that, you know, you think he's saving her, but she saves him. So it's important that it, you, know, you, can ha- you can have fun, uh, but, um, and, uh, and part of the reason for sort of, making fun or having fun at Philomena's expense is that you lure the audience into this trap uh, where they also laugh at her. And then, of course, um, they, they are then, they have, they have to put the rug pulled from underneath them uh, later in the film when she shows more grace and insight and wisdom uh, than Martin with all his um, intellectual prowess. So... That, that that's important that it goes on that trajectory. You know, if it if it did if it if it started out mocking 
people and then, and then stayed there, then that would not be, mm. then that wouldn't be, to me, I wouldn't be able to justify that artistically. With, and with Martin Brennan, people were anxious. So my, my, my mother was very anxious about it, saying, you know, don't do that, you know, don't, uh, people think you're making fun of the Irish, you'll never, you'll never be able to go back there. I said, they, they won't, They're because from there, and, and I said, and also, Martin Brennan gets the better of Alan Partridge. That's the po- that the whole point yes. is that, that <laughs> Alan assumes that Martin Brennan isn't that clever and isn't that smart. In actual fact, you know, the tables are turned, and, and that that's deliberate. And and the only way I would have done it because to not do that would be to feed into the trope of the of the of old uh, colonial British attitude to the Irish, which is which is making Irish jokes. Yes, you know, which, which uh, sort of people don't do, thankfully, anymore. But one, ones were ubiquitous in British culture, certainly in the 1970s when I was growing up, and I don't want to be part of that. So I, it, it's a gamble sometimes because people look at it without thinking about it. They can, they, they can think, oh, he's mocking that. Of course I'm not. I'm part, I am half Irish. You know? But you have to have creative confidence mm. to, 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 to um, um, meddle if you like, I felt like I was vindicated because when, when I did that character, there were plenty of uh, Irish people, uh, especially younger ones. More the, it was more, a lot of young people recognized their parents or grandparents' generation. That's, that's what I got from a lot of young people who were really uh, enamored with it because it wasn't just a, there was nothing generic. It was quite specifically, he was from the West, definitely, you know, and I was quite specific with the way he dressed. And, and, uh, well, can I ask you, Steve, uh, about, uh, well, first of all, I do want to ask just a, a little uh, bit of anarchy stuff about, like you say, the specifics of the way he dressed, the turns of phrases like, I didn't have to put my hand in my pocket once. You know, you are surgical in the precision of your writing, whether it's mid-morning matters where it's literally a case of, I take a breath, you come in with that word. Obviously with Martin, you're equally as precise that this is not what this man would wear. This is what he would wear. That must be like incredibly uh, vindicating when you get that feedback from people, but exhausting work. Exhausting. Exhaust. I mean, it's, you know, I worked hard. I was I mean, you know, I enjoy what I do. I enjoy, I enjoy doing that. You know, I, when I was a kid, I would do, I would impersonate my aunts and uncles in Britain and in Ireland, wherever I came into contact with teachers. So it was something I did and it, it was something I retained. And uh, what you do is you can try and, when, when, when you're creative, you have a box of bits, mm. uh, like a box of Lego and you're building something, you, you sort of rummage through it to find the right pieces. And um, that's all I do really. And uh, I've got, I've gotten to, point where although this creative process is sort of quite random it, or is, is, is non-specific it's, very, you, you can, it's hard to quantify or to measure you, t- you just trust the process that you, you, you start to trust uh, your own judgment about things so yeah. um, I just, I'm, I'm quite working like that I enjoy it you know, when I don't do when I'm not creative for a while when I'm not working with someone on something I uh, you know I sort of get to uh, Restless. So, um, so yeah, uh, I don't think it's exhausting. If, if it, hard work is exhausting, I think, when you don't really 
enjoy it. We had Colin Meany on the show uh, during lockdown, Brilliant. and he, he talked to us about making Alpha Papa. And, you know, it just seemed so startling to me that obviously that was a situation that you found yourself in where you couldn't be as precise or as rigorous as you would have liked to be. And that in your book, you describe the stress of not having time to rewrite things, rewriting in on the fly in the moment with yeah. Declan Lowney saying that everyone's here, we need to film something. Yes. Uh, was that what was that experience like, first of all? And how um, how much did you well, feel you got out of jail by making something it was, so great? It was it, it was chaotic. I'd just finished making Philomena with uh, Stephen Frears, Julie Dench, and that was that was very, very a very disciplined, organized process. And uh, you know, and utterly professional in its execution. And then straight afterwards, I I had to jump dive straight into Alpha Papa. And it was, you know, um, it was not quite ready to be, is the simple facts of the matter. Brendan Gleeson um, was going was gonna to do it. And Brendan read the script and said, this is not, this is not, um, it's not there. You know, it's not. And he was right. He, he was right. And I, and I, I was slightly embarrassed, you know, that I died, that I presented something to Brendan that was sort of, just it wasn't on the page it definitely mm. wasn't on the page and so but, but the thing and sometimes when we do parties we're half prepared half not prepared sometimes it's chaos but we change it it's a totally different process than doing something like phenomena where the, where the script is absolutely nailed down mm. uh and made absolute it's sort of polished within an issue's life to what we think is like uh, uh, you know you still embellish when you, when you do like film like philomena but that that was very, very much, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, has to be uh, uh, um, uh, reach a certain standard before any camera starts turning over. But on Alpha Papa, the Alan Partridge thing, we had some bits that worked, some bits that didn't. It was on the fly. It was me and the two Gibbons uh, brothers who write Partridge, uh, Declan Lowney, who, who did Father Ted, Declan was directing, but really Declan was in our hands because he was like, you know, what do you want me to shoot? You know, he was there to, he was there to help us. Mm. Yeah. Um, you know, he wasn't like the sort of the, the creative driving force, but he was there to try and instill some discipline <laughs> into a rather chaotic uh, process. And uh, it was a bit all over the place, but um, so it was incredibly difficult because I was, I was running back and forth trying to, uh, get things done. Uh, get you know, get re rewrite scripts that weren't in top in, in good shape because I've been distracted by making Philomena. I really hadn't hadn't given you know total attention to getting, and I literally jumped off one, and jumped straight on the other. So, mm. um, so Colin, I remember called him and said, "Look, I need you to do this for me." And uh, I said, "But it's the script is you know it's we have a." When we do the TV shows, you know, we have the, we have this process, which is, um, like I say, quite chaotic and quite um, not. We don't improvise, but we embellish constantly right up to the wire. And mm -hmm. uh, other actors who aren't used to that can go, "What what the hell's going on?" They can look. There is a method in the madness. Because it's never all. It's never even when we do the TV show. There's an element of 
randomness that allows us to think up something or have something occur, just feed it in almost immediately. So there's a, there's a freshness to it. Mm -hmm. It doesn't sound too staid. Yeah. But what that means yeah. is you're trying to sort of um, wrestle something into shape. And it's very high risk because it can turn out, it, you know, there's the potential for it to be a load of rubbish. But you, but, you know, we've been there before. So we were not, we knew that if we, uh, you know, I felt like, but it, it was just more chaotic than normal. Um, mm. It was, uh, but then we just a few days later, some of the rushes came back, and we thought we saw them and went, "This is good. This is funny. It's going to work. We're going to, you know, we're going to, um, we'll be. This will be a funny film. If we don't drop the ball, it'll be okay." But I remember Colin's head was spinning. He was like, I mean, at one point, he said, "This is like a student film." <laughs> um and he wasn't wrong. You know, he wasn't wrong. But we we did we did uh, eventually, you know. Um, pull a very funny film from the oh, fire. It's, it's uh, a very funny film. There's no, there's no doubt about that. And you mentioned Robin Neil Gibbons there. And for people that are tuning in who who don't know who these two guys are, how would you describe their significance to? Would you call it a rebirth of Alan? I mean, he never went away, but they, uh, they're yeah, certainly yeah. important. Well, they're well, important guys. Well, Yes, the first, I mean, Alan Parsons' account has been around 30 plus years. When we started, it was myself, Patrick Marber, and Armando Iannucci. Uh, then it was Armando Iannucci and Peter Bainham. And then it was nobody for a while. Well, it was sort of like, well, I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing, whether I was going to go back to it or not, or do something else, and blah, blah, blah. And then uh, I was in a live tour, and the Gibbons, Robin Neil Gibbons, who'd been done some work for my company, Baby Cow. My production company, and um, they came along, wrote some stuff for Partridge, and it was very, very good. First, I was like, I was shocked at how good it was, and I started to work with them, and so a new, and so it gave, it was like a, it just gave a new boost to the character, and in actual fact, now sort of defines the character, and it just brought a different dynamic. So that the the the, um, the tone of Alan. Partridge changed with their arrival. Um, you know, what I'd done with uh, Patrick and Armando and Peter uh, in the those early days was very, I was really, it was really great. Um, and, and, and some of the classic comedy came from those writers. But I think Robin Neal um, just gave it, put more flesh on the bone and gave it, gave, gave Alan longer legs. If, if, if you give, yeah. uh, um, so yeah, it, we, we it, know him better, yeah. right? We, we understand the man. Yes, he's less of a monster and more, more of a, you know, uh, more flesh and blood, more uh, human, and uh, a sort of, uh, you know, a vulnerability there. He's sort of trying. He's not obnoxious. He's not hugely intolerant. He's just, you know, he's like I think people, you know, older people um, sometimes, well, the old, older generation laugh because they see that sort of awkward or clumsy or irritating sort of incompetence and yet the younger generation see see their older generation in, in partridge a lot of millennials look at partridge and see uh, an uncle or a teacher or a broadcaster or someone who is just doesn't quite get it if you yeah. like and, and is trying his best i mean maybe the best example of that is the 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 attempt to uh, accept his responsibility in the Me Too movement of slow clapping a woman attempting to park a car, uh, I mean it does capture 
that he he is he is actually making an effort on uh, in his own kind of haphazard way. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. I mean, that's that's uh, it's just it's more recognisable to see someone clumsily attempt to because most people don't deliberately try to be mean. They just are. They just uh, are thoughtless. Mm. Yeah. And that's something that's very recognizable. So when people see that, they're they're more um, familiar with it because of family, relatives, and all the rest of it. So, um, yeah, it just makes the character more more interesting. But uh, you work with different writers. They bring different sensibilities and and different tone. And I collaborate with lots of different people. Uh, Mm. And when I do... I get excited about it because um, um, I only work with, I've been lucky enough to work with people who are very good, very competent. And so, uh, but, they, but they're all very different people. So that affects the tone of whatever it is I write with them. And um, but what you are know. you looking for when you find a writer or you see somebody? I'm not like- looking. I'm not- So that's it for part one of my conversation with Steve Coogan celebrating 10 years of Irishman Abroad. Thank you for listening to the first segment of the show. In the second half of our conversation, we get into the writing process, preparing these scripts, collaborating with other writers. We go right back to his first days at the Edinburgh Fringe, winning the Perrier, how he discovered Tim Key and his brilliance. We talk a bit about taking on the Catholic Church and, of course, Harvey Weinstein. And last but not least, Steve talks about the Irish project that he's so desperate to do, which may or may not involve Martin Brennan. You'll need to hear the whole thing, and the only way to hear it is by coming over to patreon.com forward slash Irishmanabroad and signing up for premium Irishmanabroad. It's the only way that this podcast has managed to survive 10 years through your support, people like you. You'll get access to hundreds and hundreds of episodes with the greatest Irish people ever to have lived. What better way to celebrate 10 years of this podcast by finally coming over to patreon.com forward slash Irishmanabroad and joining us for the second half of this conversation.